Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Great to be with you again today. We have another great track session by Renee Sproles from our 2023 National Gathering. In this episode of our podcast, Renee Sproles discusses gender roles and how Christians should understand this topic. She describes how in the Bible, there is circumstantial evidence and specific evidence relating to how God made men and women in complementarity. We really hope that this podcast enriches you in your ministry and you can take some great advice and content from it and benefit from it today. So let's open um, with a prayer. I'll just bless this before we begin. Father, uh, we praise you. We bless your name. Um, We thank you for Jesus, our brother, our friend, our savior. Um, I ask that your Holy Spirit um, give us the wisdom we need to navigate this conversation. And um, we just want to trust and follow Jesus and obey what he says. Help us each to do that. Uh, We love you and thank you for bringing us together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so. Male and female, a biblical look and gender in 45 minutes or less. Let's go. All right, so my sphere of writing is typically a conversation stopper. People go, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I write on gender. And that's where the, talk, that's where the conversation usually ends because it's such a hot topic in our culture right now. And it's, it's so inflammatory. And um, even in the church, I think that we have some really fuzzy thinking on what it means to be male and female. And so that's why um, I'm so excited that you decided to come and we can kind of flesh this out together. So I um, speak to elderships, surprisingly, I never saw myself doing that, about this topic um, fairly regularly. And the perspective that they bring to the conversation um, typically goes something like this. The issue of what we believe about sex and gender, what it means to be a man and a woman, is important, but it's not gospel-level important. I mean, like, the important thing is Jesus. And besides, you know, it's kind of hard to know what the Bible says about being a man and a woman. It's complicated. And actually, we've been wrong before. Maybe we've been too restrictive. So we should make up for that, right? We want to maybe err on the side of caution And just let everybody choose what they want to believe for themselves. So it goes something like that. As a woman raised in a church tradition that restricted women to the nursery and the fellowship hall kitchen, I empathize with that reasoning. I really do. But it has a significant flaw in it. Um, And the flaw is that um, when we come to the Bible... It's not like the gospel is the bullseye and everything else is up for grabs. Um, Anybody have a different um, perspective than that, that that really flat, like it's Jesus and then everything else is a personal belief? What we believe about Jesus is essential for salvation, right? It's gospel. But what might be put in in a second category if we're doing a kind of a bullseye like this. So that's your essential right there. What might you put here in that second circle? Yeah, I would say it's important. That's a perfect word to use. Thank you. And then in the outer circle, debatable beliefs. Sometimes I call them the personal beliefs. All those are good labels. And that's like what you believe about the second coming, the end times, that kind of stuff. That's an easy one to put out here. We all agree it's going to happen, but we don't really know, you know, the ins and outs. Even Jesus said he didn't know the ins and outs of it. So what we believe about men and women falls into the second category of important. It does not fall into the third category of just personal beliefs. And let me explain why. You know this in your gut, actually. You know this. So if I said... Take, take the Bible off the table. Let's talk about government. And I say, okay, the essential belief about um, the U.S. government is that we're a democratic republic, republic, and we have a ratified constitution, and that's essential to what it means to like live in America. But you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Like The main thing is that we have a democratic republic. republic. It doesn't really matter if you vote for um, Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan. The results will be the same. 
It doesn't really matter if you vote for Al Gore or George Bush. You know, what's really important is that we have a democratic republic. You know that's not true. You know, you know, like, that who we elect to government has ripple effects for every day of our lives. And so the, what we think about men and women, how we view who we are as image bearers of God is important. If we don't get it right, it's going to affect every single day of our lives, right? It's going to have ripple effects into, into how we live and what we do. Okay, so we've got our three categories of truth. And we can agree that, would you agree? Do you agree? That what we believe about men and women would fall into an important, is important. I think yes. if you're here, you would, you would probably yes. agree that it is. Um, and so getting this right is not just a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of in health and in intimacy with Jesus. It affects our relationship with one another and with Christ. And for that reason, it's very, very important. So the first problem is this. I think churches are making a category mistake when they talk about what it means to be male and female. They're sticking it in personal when it really should be stuck into the important category. Now I want to move to the second problem I see. Uh, And this is going to move into maybe the church realm. It could move into the marriage realm as well. But churches that promote egalitarian beliefs, typically they use some techniques to get there that I think are problematic. And that's kind of where I want to um, go next. So I asked earlier before we started recording, do we know what we're talking about when we say complementarian versus egalitarian? Can somebody define that for me? If I say egalitarian churches, churches that promote an egalitarian viewpoint, what am I saying? Women elders. All right, so they men, have women elders. Men and women are equal in what they can accomplish to how they can minister within the church. All roles are equal for both gen. Everything's on the table. Everything's up for grabs. We're interchangeable. The, really, the standard in egalitarian circles is gifting. If you're good at it, you do it. Um, that's how we live in our world, in our secular world, um, for lots of good reasons. Um, but I'm going to say that when we come to our church family and we come to our families, we want to live in accordance with reality. We want to recognize that gravity exists, and we don't want to ignore gravity. We want to live in accordance with gravity. So what do we mean when we say complementarian churches? The role of women, both roles complement each other. Yes. That we have different roles. It's not an equal, uh, it's not an equality issue. It's a role-oriented issue. Okay, so he's um, touching on something that, let's use colors here. I like to think of it like this. God made women and God made men. And we have some things in common. And some things, but but many things we have um, that God placed inside of us complement each other, right? And we're going to unpack some of that um, today. So that's what I mean. When I, when I say that um, it's egalitarian churches, yes, typically they have female elders, They'll welcome the idea, at least, of a female senior pastor, senior minister. And so that's what I'm talking about. So the problem I have when I get to do the churches I go to and talk to about this is, uh, so I just, I was at one uh, maybe in the last year, and the, um, (laughs) they had a forum for women in leadership, their leadership was discussing what to do next. And so I was the complementarian person, and then there was an egalitarian person. And the egalitarian person went first, and he spent the entire hour telling them that they couldn't read First Timothy 2 for themselves and understand what it said and do it unless they knew Greek and Hebrew and all of the um, fancy, fancy extra stuff that you need to know. That's fun to know. I like to know that stuff. I love to look up words and things like that. And that's bothersome to me because the position um, for 500 years for Protestants and evangelicals has been that we, filled with the Holy Spirit, can pick up this book and we can read it and we can 
understand it enough to do what it says. And that's what I want you to leave here. If you remember nothing else, remember that. You, filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped with amazing resources in this country that we live in, good godly teachers and books, but mostly the Holy Spirit, can pick up this book and read it and do what it says. And we're going to walk through that together. All right, so... There's two types of evidence I want us to look at today. Um, Alastair Roberts has so much good thinking on this topic, and he's British, so he's fun to listen to. So if you want to look him up, um, I'll write his name on the board. You can find him. He's got, like, a website, and, a, and he's been interviewed on podcasts, and um, he's just a great thinker in this area. And he helped me so much because he said, okay, look, There's lots of evidence in Scripture about what it means to be a man and a woman. Now, uh, we can't turn to, like, the book of first man and second woman and, like, read a list of what it's supposed to be, right? But there is evidence in Scripture, and it starts in Genesis, and it ends in Revelation. And there's two types of evidence. There's circumstantial evidence, and there's specific evidence. Have any lawyers in here? Please say no. (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay. But if you watch crime TV or anything like that, like you know what I'm talking about when I say circumstantial evidence versus specific or direct evidence. What is circumstantial evidence in a crime case? It's evidence that can't that points in a certain direction because it's an indicator of either positioning of something or it, it, it relates to the circumstances surrounding the case. Yes. Yes, so this type of proof is taken by exactly that, observing what's happened and drawing conclusions from that. So I've got a couple examples. The suspect was seen fleeing on foot from the scene of the crime. That's circumstantial evidence, okay? Um, The Internet browser history was found to show they were looking up ways to bomb a building, Okay, circumstantial evidence. Then we have specific or direct evidence. What might you what might you infer that to be based on our discussion? Eyewitness testimony. Okay, yeah, a fact, eyewitness testimony, uh, fingerprints. Yes, so fingerprints at the scene of the crime, specific or direct evidence, fingerprints mixed in with other people's circumstantial. I thought it was interesting. So, okay, so we've got circumstantial evidence in Scripture about what it means to be male and female, and we've got direct evidence about what it means to be male and female. And both types of evidence are useful. And surprisingly to me, when I looked this up, most cases are decided with circumstantial evidence. Most criminal cases, they, they come out with convictions based on circumstantial evidence, not, not direct evidence, but we're going to get some of both. Let's look at circumstantial evidence. Before we hit scripture, y'all know um, the idea of general revelation and special revelation. So general revelation is I see a mountain and I know that didn't just happen. That's like everybody can know there's a God, Romans 1. Everyone's without excuse because what's been made is generally revealed to everyone. And then there's like specific evidence. I can't really know who Jesus is unless it's specifically revealed to me in scripture. All right, well, general revelation, circumstantial evidence in our bodies about what it means to be male and female. Let's talk about that for a second before we move to Scripture. Interestingly, there's complementarity built right into our bodies. Think about that for a second. So if a a man and a woman, as we said earlier, are made to complement each other, what parts of our bodies actually complement each other? I'll give you a hint. Look at my face. Your eyes. You actually see two images. And your brain lays them on top of each other, right? Your ears. You actually can tell where sound is coming from because you have two ears. If you close one ear, someone who's deaf in one ear will tell you how difficult it is to hear with just the one ear, right? Our hands do slightly different things. Um, And in the same way, our whole bodies give us clues to what it means to be male and female. This is a hot topic in our country right now because we are believing that we can pretend in our brain something about our bodies 
and make it real. But that is not the case. And so we need to be clear about what kind of information, what kind of circumstantial evidence our bodies are giving us. All right. So, infants. Male and female fetuses differ in testosterone concentrations beginning as early as week eight. So, this hormone dump of testosterone actually changes the way that baby's brain develops. So that a male brain and a female brain are are physically developing differently. And research is continuing to show, although you won't read it in any newspaper or see it on any website these days, research continues to show that, uh, I want to say this correctly so I'm going to read it, that hormones are particularly important for the development of sex-typical childhood behavior, including... Toy choices, which were recently thought to just be cultural. We give girls dolls and we give boys trucks, and that and that's why they like them. But when the hormone dump is interrupted, we see males displaying more feminine traits. And so we know those hormones are connected to our behavior. Um, I love Christine Hoff Summers. I'll write her name up too. Um, she has some really interesting work on uh, boys and girls, and she has this article titled, You Can Give a Boy a Doll, But You Can't Make Him Play With It, right. and um, it's in the Atlantic, if you want to look it up, and I'm just going to read you a paragraph from it. Children, with few exceptions, are powerfully drawn to sex-stereotyped play. Boys are attracted to large group rough-and-tumble play. And girls are attracted to intimate theatrical play. The female preference for nurturing play and the male propensity for rough and tumble play hold cross-culturally and cross-species. Yeah, that's right. Among the monkeys, researchers have found that females play with dolls far more than their brothers who prefer balls and cars. It seems unlikely that the monkeys were indoctrinated by stereotypes in the toy catalog. Something else is going on. What what is written in every cell of our bodies is on display in young children. What I'm not saying is that girls must play with dolls and boys must play with trucks. What I'm saying is there's hormones going on in our bodies in differing concentrations that make us want to be rough and tumble and roll around on the playground with each other or pretend whole entire worlds with characters and and all of the settings and everything. Testosterone and estrogen play a role. All right, and then let's look at adults. We have... I'm so not a science person, so correct me if I'm wrong. Ten body systems? Nine of them are self-contained within a male body and a female body. One of them takes another system to work on its own. What system do you think that is? The reproductive system. We only have half of one. What is God telling us? He's telling us that we must complement each other to create new life, to fulfill the creation mandate. Right? Go fill the earth. Multiply. Subdue it. Exercise dominion over it, man and woman. You can't do that without each other. And I'm going to write it on your bodies to be sure you get it. And think about this. A woman's body is an actual home. You men in here, your bodies are not homes. Your bodies will never be homes. My body is a home. If you're a woman, your body is a home. Um, When Sisera's mother was watching for him to return from battle, when Deborah told Barak, hey, you need to go fight this guy, and then Jael, like, drives the peg through his head, you know, and the mom doesn't know that yet. She's looking for him, and she's like, oh, my son, my son, he's going to be coming home soon. Maybe he'll bring one or two wombs for every man. He didn't say She didn't say women. She said wombs because for her, they're interchangeable. That's a distinctive to what it means to be a woman. 
is to have the capacity, the potential to carry life inside of you. What's God telling us when he makes women able to do that? And cool, fun fact, one of the um, girls in my discipleship group is a doula, and she's like, actually, the husband contributes the genetic material to create the placenta. So the husband's actually feeding the baby from the very beginning Mm -hmm. and caring for it. What's God telling us about what it means to be a man? That's so beautiful to me. So scientists are discovering, or actually rediscovering, that our behavior is not solely socially constructed. Peter Kreeft, great Catholic philosopher, puts it this way. Biological sexuality is innate, natural, and in fact pervasive to every cell of your body. It is not socially conditioned, conventional, or environmental. It's hereditary. All right, let's move to scripture. Every story, every vignette of a man and a woman helps give a little more color, a little more detail, a little more um, clarity to what it means to be a man and a woman. All right? So this is where you guys are really going to help me here. Let's start with Adam and Eve. What do we learn about what it means to be a man or a woman from, from the story we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? I'm going to wait you out. Learn from a failure. Okay. He failed to protect Eve. Yes. So he was meant, he was supposed to teach her, and he didn't. Or if he did, he didn't do it well. And when the serpent came, he kept his mouth shut. Yeah, so he failed to protect. So if he failed to protect, can we maybe infer the reverse, that he was maybe intended to protect? What, do we, what can we learn about women? He was created to be his strong helper. Yes, I love that phrase, strong help, a strong help opposite him. That opposite word is the same word that is used when um, Abraham married, okay, you never should do this on the fly in front of people. Yeah, he married Sarah, but who does she give him? Hagar, Hagar, so... So Hagar, and then, then Sarah's mad at Hagar, and she's like, yeah. get rid of that woman and her kid. And so Hagar and her son Ishmael go out, and she puts him under a tree to die, and she goes <clears throat> opposite him. Same word that we see as for woman. Strong help, opposite him. You see what I'm saying? If you get this same picture, right hand, left hand, right arm, left arm. The woman is meant to be a strong help opposite him. What What's... Feminists, feminists have done a lot of good things. I love to vote. Thank you, feminists, for like helping me get the opportunity to vote. What I don't like feminists doing is saying that to be a strong woman, you must look like a man. You must act like a man. You must be like a man. That strength is only a male kind of strength. What we see from the very beginning is that woman is meant to be a strong help. That, and again, God uses this word like 17 more times for himself in the Old Testament. Same word used for Eve. This this strong, complementary help. Um, What about, who was made first? Mm -hmm. So we get this, he's like the firstborn. Fancy word for that is protogenitor. Um, Genesis doesn't really unpack that. It just says, Adam was born first, woman was taken from his side. Interesting. Right, we're gonna the scripture the well scripture will later unpack this concept and we're gonna get to it later on. So we'll just let it sit there for a second and simmer. Let's move to some more examples, more circumstantial evidence. Um, Abraham and Sarah. What do we learn about being a man and woman from them? Called him Lord. Yeah, I hated that part. <laughs> so yeah, she called him Lord. Um, which is a term of respect. Timothy uses that same word when he says older women teach the younger women to be lords of their home. Interesting that he would use that. Um, you get um, it, it, you get the words translated master, but everywhere else that word is translated um, lord. Man, no, it's translated manager typically, but the but the word is. Is the same word. The same word Sarah used for Abraham. Paul uses for 
women in terms of how they run a home. You're the Lord of the home. Your body's a home. You're the Lord of the home. Are you seeing? I'm not saying you have. I'm saying you're the Lord of the home. Like that is gravity. Whether you work outside the home or not, that is gravity. You are Lord of the home. And you know this, right? You know women set the tone of the home. You know it. When your wife is unhappy, there's nodding for people who are just listening to the recording. (laughs) Uh, You know this, right? What do we learn about Abraham? What do we learn about what it means to be a man when we look at Abraham? We see this failure to protect. And when he fails to protect her, God's like, okay, well, I'll do what you're not going to do. I'm going to close up the womb of all of the king's wives. Nobody can have kids. When we look at priests, What do priests do? Intercede for us, for man to God. Mm-hmm. So they were our intercessors. Yeah, so they made, so they were literally killing something all day, every day. And they were awash in blood. All right, so they made sacrifices. What else were they supposed to do? Mm-hmm, yep. They were caretakers. That was their work. How are people, do people have Bibles in their homes? How are people supposed to know what to do? They were the teachers. Yeah, they were the teachers. And all the pagan countries, people around the Israelites had female priests. All of them. But you do not see female priests. When God creates his own priesthood. Interesting. Circumstantial evidence. Interesting. Also interesting. Um, I mean, just think about it. Moses comes down from the mountain and he's like, they're all worshiping the golden calf. I love this story so much. And he grinds it up and puts it in water and makes everybody drink it. Yeah. I'm like, why did I not do that to my kids? Like sometimes, you know, and they're <laughs> disobeying me with like a toy or something. So no, we're going to grind that plastic toy into powder and you're going to drink it down. I'm just kidding y'all. <laughs> be so, you're so looking so serious. All right. So he comes down. He's so angry. And God's like, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses is like, don't do that. But Moses does call the Levites who will eventually be the priests. He calls the Levites, and what does he tell them to do? Grab a sword. Go kill your friend. Go kill your neighbor. Can you picture him telling a bunch of women to do that? I'm I'm just being honest. I, I, I wouldn't want to do it. Circumstantial evidence. All right, and then we get to the prophets. And everyone in egalitarian circles loves to trot out Deborah, Deborah. <laughs> right? And she is. She's a prophet, and she's a judge. And um, But it's more nuanced than that. Alistair Roberts has excellent teaching on this, if you're interested in particular in unpacking the idea of judges, because he points out that there, like, there's judges and then there's judges. There's judges who are covenant found, not judges, prophets. There's different kinds of prophets. There's covenant founding prophets like um, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, John the Baptist. There's prophets who received revelation that we have preserved in the scripture. They're all male. Covenant founding prophets are all male. And then we have um, helper, assistant prophets, leaders of schools of prophets, and their followers who are male and female. So we have different kinds of prophets. Again, it's like our bullseye picture. Not all prophets are created equal. So Deborah is a prophet, and yet she calls herself a mother when she refers to herself, a mother over Israel who wants to raise up sons who will protect Israel. Again, we we, that's a, we got the third time we've touched on that protection. I'm going to repeat that for the people who are listening. She didn't want to do it. Israel was devoid of male leadership, and she said, "Okay, you know, I will go with you, but the glory is going to go to a woman, which yeah. would be particularly shameful in that in that culture." The, the battle, right? Right. So we're going to run out of time, y'all. I'm going to give myself five extra minutes because of the recording. 
debacle. So we have 15 minutes. We've got Proverbs and Song of Solomon, wisdom literature, where we get a refresh, and then we get a reset, because God doesn't just leave it there. Wisdom is actually personified as a woman in the entire book of Proverbs. She calls out. That's her original, that's, that's her reset. That's her redo for what she really should have been doing for Adam all along, right? Um, and then Song of Solomon. You see where the woman's love is for the man and the man doesn't resist her, like the curse was in Genesis 3, right? It's, um, it's like a refresh of what life was supposed to be like when we read the Song of Solomon, how it's supposed to be like between men and women. And then we see Jesus elevating women. They're his disciples. Okay, that's interesting. Female disciples, are they the 12? No. Right. All right, so let's, let's just put a pin in it. Um, the apostles as well, are they female? All They're all male. All right. Um, and then in marriage, it's just worth noting, um, what does Paul say marriage is actually really a picture of? Christ in the church. Christ in the church. Who plays the Christ role? Male. And who plays the church role? Women. And does the church submit to Christ in the exact same interchangeable way that Christ submits to us, his church? No. It's not interchangeable. I don't like mutual submission. I used to use it. I wrote a book with it in it. Ignore that if you ever read it. I like submit to one another, which is what Ephesians says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because we lose the distinction here. The Galatarians are saying we have mutual submission, interchangeable submission. And Scripture shows us, no, no, you, man, you play the Christ role. You lay down your life in protection, in love. And women, you play the church role in respect, in listening to him and not shutting him out and not discounting what he says, in submission. And then in Revelation, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, every one of us are female in relationship to Christ because we're his bride. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence in Scripture. And that's just a sampling of it because we had to go fast of what it means to be male and female. Let's look at some specific evidence. Uh, One person I read, it might have been Alastair Roberts, um, that the specific evidence is kind of like Advil. Like you take it when you're sick to get better. It, like the specific evidence in Scripture about what it means to be male and female is addressing a problem. And if we live on Advil, we're not really very healthy. And so we have churches who are living on Advil. They're living on 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. And they're sick. It's not a good environment for women, and it's actually not a good environment for men either. So we want to we want to capture the whole of what we see men and women doing in Scripture. There's men who are shepherds and farmers and poets and musicians and warriors and kings. There's all kinds of men, and there's all kinds of women. There's women who are queens, women who drive a tent peg to the head of a man, women who... Go with their mother-in-law and provide for the family. The Proverbs 31 woman, who's a businesswoman. Lydia, who's a businesswoman. We see all kinds of women, right? But there's this specific evidence, and we got to address it. So 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, where Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So, what does that mean? I mean, the best thing we can do is come to Scripture and go, what did it mean to them? And how did they obey it? And now, what does it mean for us to obey it? You can't interpret that in a vacuum, though. You've got to consider it along with everything else that's been written. And Paul writes in Romans... That Adam is the one who is held responsible and accountable by God. If Eve is the one who ate the fruit, shouldn't she be the one held accountable? If we're going to say, you know, she's she's got to be quiet and she's got to submit all the time, then it, 
it should be she should have been the one held accountable, but she's not. Right, right. He's represented. He, he, in some way, and I would submit it's because of this. I'd submit. Get that. <laughs> that it's this. It's this principle of primogeniture. Um, Adam was the firstborn, and we all died because of him. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, and we all live because of him. Being the firstborn carried rights and responsibilities, and that's why God would say, even in the garden. When Eve ate the fruit, who did he call? Who did God call for? Adam. What does that tell you? I've come to make space for you, so you don't have to worry about the wolves and the bears and all of the things out there. I'm giving you space to thrive. I'm giving you room to live out the image of God to the fullest potential that you can possibly have. I'm going to use my strength in that direction. And so, yeah, we see, we see um, that Paul's writing to Timothy. It's a church planting manual, you guys. First and second Timothy is basically, here's how you run a church. And when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach, and here's why, he didn't say because women don't know as much as men. He didn't say because women aren't gifted. He says, um, no, it goes back to this Genesis account. He's always going to point us back to Genesis. And when he points us back to Genesis, I have to go, I don't think that's cultural. I think that means something metaphysical. And then he goes straight into chapter 3 talking about elders. And that doesn't seem coincidental to me either. Once he just says, hey, no authoritative teaching women. And here's what it looks like to be a good elder. This is the type of man that you want for an elder. Interesting, interesting, specific evidence. And then 1 Corinthians 11, I love this passage. I think it's super clarifying. You see women and men praying and prophesying in the assembly. And Paul doesn't tell him to stop. But he starts off with this explanation about what he wants him to do by saying this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul does not say that Christ should be the head of man. He said Christ is the head of man. He doesn't say the man should be the head of the woman. He says the man is the head of the woman. Paul doesn't say God should be the head of Christ. He said God is the head of Christ. This is gravity, you guys. He's connecting the principle of headship all the way back to creation. He's he's saying the reason you don't wear a veil on your head, guys, is because you're the head of woman. Like, act like a man. The pagans, both they both covered their heads, men and women, when they made sacrifices. He's like, you're acting like the pagans. There's complementarity here in creation, and you need to act out this, this order that I've embedded into the fabric of reality. So I'll say it again. Male headship does not change as culture changes. Every culture has to figure out what that looks like in actual day-to-day life for a man to be a Christ-like head to the women around him. But it is gravity. You can say gravity doesn't exist. You can say you don't like the idea of gravity. You can say gravity is socially constructed and oppressive. But if you climb on top of this building and you jump off, you will die. What it means to be male and female is gravity. And people around us are dying. Because they are pretending like it doesn't exist. We have good news, you guys. We have really, really good news. It's not bad news. We don't have to like bring someone to Christ and go, yeah, and don't read the passages about what it means to be male and female. It's good news. We need to, we need to get our brains wrapped around it, understand it, and be able to talk to our kids about it, be able to talk to our neighbors about it. 
It's good news. There's archetypes, not stereotypes in Scripture about what it means to be male and female. There's things to aspire to, and there's besetting sins to avoid. If we'll just take the time to look, open our eyes and look, and do our best to obey what we see in there. Yeah, so Renew's position, which is my position, um, is that the senior minister and the elders should be men. That's how we make sense of what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 11, 14, which we didn't get to, which is women cannot judge prophecies in the church when there's, ju- when there's judging of prophecies, which is what the elders used to do when the preaching was in the round and the itinerant preachers would come through. The elders would be like, nope, that's heresy, or amen, amen. You may believe what was just spoken to you. And Paul says, women, you don't do that. You let the elders do that. So the way we make sense of it, the way we put all the puzzle pieces together without throwing any of them out, without trimming any of them to fit, is that what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what God is saying to us in his word is that based on the circumstantial and specific evidence, elders and senior ministers are male. And then as the elders see fit to delegate authority to others in the congregation, that's exactly what they should be doing. I love that we have this pen back here in the corner of the room. That's kind of what the elders should be doing. They say, here's our boundary lines. You know, my husband and I teach on Sunday mornings. Our church has a statement of faith, and we are not allowed to teach off of that. Like, if we, if we go off the reservation, they can and should stop us. But they've delegated authority to us to teach a class full of men and women, and we submit to that authority. We may have a personal belief that's outside of, of that um, statement of faith of, uh, well, it's not up here anymore, like a personal matter or an important matter that's nuanced a little differently. We are not teaching that publicly with the delegated authority given to us. So you know this, right? You know when you have the authority to do something, to put it in egalitarian terms, the gifting to do something, you know you can't do it just whenever you want, however you want. I mean, it's not true in our, in our world today. My son is an amazing pianist. Amazing. So by the time he got really good in his teens, um, and we would go to a hotel and they'd have a grand piano, well, we'd just have a little upright piano <laughs> in our house. And he's like, wow, that'd be so cool to play that. But did he, did he have the gifting to play that piano? Yes. Did he have the authority in that realm? No, he did not. He had to go ask permission. And sometimes they went, might say yes, and sometimes they would say no, you're not allowed to play it. Uh, you know this with police, right? The police represent authority. But my local police in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, cannot walk into Nashville Airport and exercise the, the same authority they would in our city. Like, you know that, right? So, so there's, a, there's an order in Scripture, hierarchy, if you want to use the word that you used, that we submit to. And certainly those who have authority can delegate it. They should. They should delegate it. And, and they should actually... In my circumstance, where women are getting more uh, freedom to do things in our church, I'm finding a lot of women are going, oh, I don't really want to pray out loud. I just, I just like the men to do it. And I'm like, shepherds, it's your response. If my kid came to me and said, no, mom, I don't really want to learn to pray. That's hard. I don't want to pray out loud. I would be like, too bad. In this family, we pray out loud. And you're going to learn to do it. So it's not just giving people the ability to minister how they want to. Sometimes it's saying, uh-uh, you, I see this gift in you, and I expect you to use it. So we have problems on both sides of the spectrum. We have people maybe who are grabbing for positions they want just because I think I, think I might make a pretty good senior pastor. I mean, I've got some, some giftings for it. That's off limits for me. That's not a realm where I can exercise those gifts. There's plenty of places. I can exercise those gifts and have exercised those gifts. But we live in America where we like, where it's the land of opportunity, and we vote people in and we vote them out. And we don't like being told no, that something's off the table. We don't like it. And to, to Anthony Walker and David Young's point, we died. We died to our own opinion, and we have to do our very best to live in this realm of reality. This is gravity. We live, we live according to this. And best I can tell, that's off limits for me. In your book, do you go into more detail about 
the qualities of a godly man and the qualities, characteristics of a godly woman. Yeah. So, because it seems like to me those kind of things <coughs> got to be identified mm-hmm. so you can figure out, okay, if we're going to talk about the gift of leadership, what's it look like in men and what's it look like in women? Because mm-hmm. there's yeah. going to be nuances too, and it's going to look differently. Yeah. So the book is um, it can be read. The new book that just came out can be read cover to cover. It is a coherent kind of walkthrough of the arguments. But you can also just one-off a chapter. So we're going to have a whole chapter on 1 Corinthians 11, a whole chapter on 1 Timothy 2, and a whole kind of wrap-up chapter at the end where Bobby Harrington and I kind of list out 25 qualities of a godly man, 25 qualities of a godly woman, what that looks like. Um, We have a whole chapter that walks through in much more detail than we went today, of all these vignettes of maleness and femaleness that gives us hints about, here's what it looks like when we work it out right. Here's what it looks like when we do a terrible job of it. Oh, do you see some besetting sins, breach of the sexes even, that are that start to crop up? That's good information for us. So, yeah, we do. We definitely address those um, in there. Male and female, a biblical look at gender. It's the title of this class. It's um, got a blue and pink... Binding. Half blue, half pink. <laughs> um, yeah, it just came out like last month. And then next month, a workbook, a five-chapter workbook, which I call it's like distilled third-grader level workbook. If you just want to like walk through it with a group of people, that's coming out as well. It's meant for church leaders um, and serious students of Scripture who really want to kind of get their brain around this um, in a better way. That'll be out, out soon. So, yeah, the, I, I feel for people raising children now. Um, it's really, really hard. Renew has a fabulous 52-lesson book that just came out. I think it's in your bags. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that is going to be gold for your families because your families can do those like one of those a week and go through it in a year, um, or they can spread them out however they might want to. But... Um, I, if I were talking to young families now, well, I do. I talk to moms in their 30s. That's who I, who I typically work with. Um, I would say, like, you need to be the first source of information. So, like, more talk is better. Um, you need to be explaining the stuff we walked through today, what, like, about our bodies and what it means to be a man and a woman, um, that it's written on every cell, of our bodies, that when they dig your bones up in 200 years, they can look at your bones and know if you were a man or a woman. That when we're risen at the resurrection, we're not going to be married, but we're going to be male and female. That's your body for eternity. It's a gift from God, and it's telling the world something about God. We, we image God with our bodies. I would, be, I would be doing that. I would seriously consider um, your education choices. Uh, I know that um, private education is expensive. We homeschooled. Um, but I cannot, it's very difficult to undo eight or nine hours of government indoctrination with the hours that you have in the evening. It can be done. If you want to know how to do it, Rod Dreyer's book, mm-hmm. Live Not By Lies, our brothers and sisters in communist countries have done this. Um, they spent three to four hours after school with their children reading the truth and yeah, not at sports, not at sports. Correct. The, um, the people who were doing this, these, these were women who worked all day outside the home. The children went to communist schools and then they came back at night. It's the Benda family that he highlights in his book. She, her husband was imprisoned because he was fighting against the communist government. And they said, you know what? If you'll just, like, leave the country, we'll let you go. And she said, no, you stay in prison. I got this. And she went to work, and then she came home, and four hours a night, she filled her kids' minds with a Christian worldview, with the truth. So you can do it. But I would tell, I tell um, my young women and the men that my husband mentors, we're like, you, where do you send your child all day? That bullseye, it's important to educate your child. Public, private, or homeschool, that's a decision that's going to drastically change how your life is lived. That's going to drastically change the quality of your life. 
just as much as not understanding what it means to be a man and a woman um, and living wrongly that way. So I would say, yeah, to me, partly it's a numbers game. I mean, what if you if you're if you're giving your child over to sports and school um, so they can be well rounded, which I don't see any place in Scripture where we're called to be well rounded. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ, and so um, it takes a real reprioritization. I get it. I've raised two children. I thought I was a horrible parent for saying no to, to baseball travel. I thought, he's really good at this. What am I doing? And I just counted up the hours. And we homeschooled. I counted up the hours, and I just thought, it's not worth the trade-off. I can't give. I, I'm, I, get, I got this much time with this child to help him learn to love and trust and follow Jesus. I'm not going to turn over that much time. That's, that's our decision. But I know Dave and Sydney. Sydney and David Clayton yeah. have been have been making some of those similar decisions with their family and are mentoring others in their churches to just kind of go, you know what? Put it all on the table. Put everything you do in your family on the table and take your arm and swipe off everything that doesn't get you where you're headed. Mm-hmm. You're the grown up. You actually have the ability to swipe it all off the table. Don't say, I'll just ask my kids and I'll see what they want to do. No, that's on you. You take the hit. And you take the hit if you make the wrong decision. And change. Don't put that on your kid. So I, I, that's what I tell parents all the time. On a, um, I have a podcast, Just Ask Your Mom, for the moms in here, where you'll get more sassy opinions. If you listen, on Mondays. <laughs> we so appreciate you joining us on the Real Life Theology Podcast again today. We just invite you to go ahead and grab your 2023 National Gathering tickets if you have not as of yet. It's going to be a great time with a lot more track session content, just like you heard today, surrounding a lot of different theology and disciple-making topics. We hope to see you there.